So if you have not already done so, we hope you would uh, subscribe to us. Um, I'm not going to edit that out. That's just my, that's going to make, that's going to be the intro to the, uh, to the episode. That's a couple whiskeys in. That's okay. <clears throat> Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for lean whiskey, lean talk with a fun spirit. Hi, everybody. It's Mark Graven. Welcome to episode six of the Lean Whiskey Podcast. We're joined again by Jamie Flinchball. How's it going, Jamie? It's going great. Good to see you. It's good to see you. People, people listening, you know, I don't know if we mentioned before, Jamie and I are doing a, a video chat, but we're, we're only releasing uh, the audio. You know, we, let's talk about that for a second, though. Jamie and I experimented. Do you, re- do you remember when we did a video podcast maybe back in like 2010? Yeah, it was it was quite a while ago, and and uh, you know I I don't know if it matters if you have to do it that way all the time or if a one off video is what people might appeal to them or if just being in a different format throws them off. But um, it doesn't seem to work as well for the longer format, and perhaps that's just where where people listen to it. Yeah. Now we have talked about maybe experimenting with video, maybe experimenting with something that's more of a live broadcast, maybe experimenting with letting someone ask a question live. Um, experimenting is good, right? Yeah, experimenting is good. I think the, the whole idea is, you know, not just, uh, you know, to make things better, you have to experiment and try new things, but also just to learn. And, and I, you know, I think it's also what makes it, makes it fun and interesting. Uh, I think live would be an interesting experiment. Um, uh, particularly if we can add in live questions, I think that would be part of the fun. It might be too much production to do it every time, but you know, why not try it? There's risk that nobody would show up live. <laughs> there is risk. Well, that's that's, that's fine. We'll 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 uh, we'll have my cat make a cameo appearance again and <laughs> sure interpret his question. Yeah, but you know, experimenting. Um, often means experiments don't go well, right? And we hopefully learn from those mistakes. And then I I do want to own up to, I did put a a short little announcement audio audio out in the podcast. Um, My human error or bad process or both, I had an audio editing mistake in episode three when Chris Burnham was the guest. Uh, Part of episode two didn't get deleted from the software that I use to edit the episodes and somebody, a listener pulled the and on cord and sent me a LinkedIn message. So I appreciate that and then get this. So then I, I identified what went wrong and I swear I thought it was fixed. And then the same person, he reached out and said, well, there's still a problem here at 14 minutes into the, <laughs> so I don't know what the cause of that one is, but I think it's fixed. And if people go to the podcast feed, look for, where it says in parentheses, take three, that audio right. file should be fine. Knock on wood. But well, and I, th- I think that's the that's the thing is you can you can in PDCA in, in private, right, and work on perfecting before you put anything out there. But but first, I don't think uh, everybody expects the same level of perfection. And second, um, I don't think it's a real test until you put it out there. You know, I yeah. think. 
content meeting meeting customer is where you really learn whether it makes sense or not. And and of course, people find stuff that our, our ears might not just have picked up. So uh, yeah. PDCA involves our customers, and I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I appreciate the and on cord poll uh, to Tom from Ohio. I'll give you uh, a somewhat semi anonymous shout out. But if you're if you're still listening, uh, hi Tom. It was uh, actually I saw Tom. Uh, in person last week. So um, thank you again for that. But it's funny, you know, we talk about experiments. I've probably produced and published more than at least 700 podcast episodes. And I don't know if I've ever made that mistake before. (laughs) Well, that's, that's the thing is, is, uh, you know, you have processes that have, you know, huge amounts of opportunities for variation. And then you know, use new technology, use new methods, you try new things, and there's inherently opportunities creeping in. And so there's there's people that have made cars for 100 years, and there's people that have, you know, been doctors for 30 years that that make a, a new mistake for the first time. It's just, uh, it's inherent to the variation we face in our processes. Well, and you're right, I did... I have some relatively new technology where um, I was using a new piece of software and... It could, I'm not going to blame the software, but it was more maybe my unfamiliarity with said software. So again, uh, sorry about that. If anyone uh, gave up on episode three uh, because of that audio glitch, um, please go back. And if, if you want to listen, uh, give that a try again. Great. Well, why don't we uh, head into our, our major tradition here, which is, which is some whiskey yeah. um, uh, to go along with it. And um uh, for this for this episode, we decided to go with uh, you know so a, a single malt scotch, right? so very traditional. We've done a lot of American stuff, so I, I have a brand new bottle that I'm I'm going to open for the first time just for this episode. Um, <laughs> we hear the cork. That we hear the cork. That's that's the brand new bottle, and and this is uh, you know what I chose for this episode was a bottle of Glen Ross a Whiskey Maker's Cut. Uh, it's a space-side single malt scotch. Um, Glen Ross used to make a really popular sherry cask uh, uh, whiskey uh, scotch, and that was discontinued. Um, so the kind of the, the perspective is that this maybe replaces it. Um, it's first fill sherry uh, seasoned oak, oak casks, uh, no age, um, but you know you kind of expect this with sherry casks, but fantastic color. Um, I bought it uh, again from my favorite vendor, uh, Bounty Hunter. Uh, it's in their in their catalog. It wasn't part of my my uh, my club, but just something I decided to try. And uh, we'll give that a taste throughout uh, throughout this episode. Uh, Bounty Hunter, not a sponsor, <laughs> not a sponsor, but uh, yeah, you know, we're open. We're open to that. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I think yours is kind of unusual. Uh, in your notes, it said matured only in sherry casks. Is there an age statement on the bottle? There's no age, no age specified. So I, I, I take it when that when that happens, it means that they they let it age until they think it's ready. Yeah, and, uh, and they're okay with the variation because, as I said, this is the whiskey maker's cut, which means uh, maybe it's less about a recipe and more about the whiskey maker's uh, final final say. So. Uh, not not sure exactly what that means, but but uh, I assume it means the 
uh, the whiskey's released when, when they feel it's damn good and ready. Yeah. What, what, what's your first sip telling you? Was it damn good? And uh, it, it's, it's, it's got a little, lot of heat on it. Not a lot of heat. It has some heat on it. Um, definitely get a, a bunch of vanilla, um, which, which I, I never mind. Uh, a little bit of orange as well. Um, but, uh, but quite good. I, this is something I would immediately go back and consider putting on the shelf again. But fortunately, with a new bottle, I've got a little, a little more to go first. Yeah. And it's got a reddish color to it, which is probably from the sherry cask. Yeah, I would, I would think so. So It is a fantastic color just to, just to look at it just makes you want to pour some. Yeah. Okay. What are you drinking tonight? Yeah. So it's also from the Speyside region in Scotland. This is a a Balvini scotch. Called it's a triple cask, sixteen years. So here's a case where they do have an age statement on it. Um, typically, Balvini uh, is twelve years, uh, and then they have, of course, some that are older. I think I bought this one at a duty free store. Maybe coming back from London. I, I think I don't, I don't know for a fact that this is a travel exclusive. But you know, Jamie's. You know, your yours was. Uh, the sherry cask. This one says it's been aged for 16 in three distinct cask types. It doesn't say how long in each, but we've got Oloroso sherry uh, barrels, first fill bourbon barrels. So there's a little bit of uh, American bourbon contribution. The, the bourbon makers here, a lot of them sell their barrels to Scotch producers. And yep. that's this traditional whiskey casks which I assume are just um, charred oak. They've never been used before. Yeah. Or, or, or they've been used by other, other whiskeys. Don't, don't, yeah. don't know for sure. Um, but it is interesting. The American bourbon barrels, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, I like scotch cause it, you know, that like Glenn Ross right here is established 18, 1879. So you think that has this long tradition, but uh, a lot of these are owned by the same company. And so where do you dump single use bourbon barrels? Well, you send them over to Scotland, use them for, use them for scotch. And so fundamentally you're not getting the same scotch recipe you got a hundred years ago. Um, yeah. just, just, just how it, how it is. Um, yeah. but, but, but I would say Balvini is, is one of those brands that, you know, if I were, if I were starting somebody on, on scotch, I think it's a fantastic starter. Um, yeah. Either the 12 year or the 15 year was used to be my go-to early on in my, my, my tasting days um, uh, getting started and, and uh, you know, super smooth, uh, great profile without too much heat, uh, without too much peat. Um, it, it's a, uh, it's a nice, it's a really nice, easy drinking uh, scotch. Yeah. One of my favorites uh, is the Balvini. 15 year sherry cask, which is aged more traditionally. And then I, I, I'm guessing or off recollection has two or three years of secondary aging in uh, the sherry cask. But it's fun to see what they can do playing around with different types of barrels. I've got some scotch that's been secondarily aged in different types of wine barrels. And they, they you know, they're allowed to do that and, and play around with that. And I, I would call those good experiments. Yeah, I I think you know especially the the the, the Scotch industry that segment of it has been 
really opened up to experimentation and trying new things in part out of need. Um, more global competition against the Japanese and American whiskeys, New Zealand whiskeys and more. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of traditionalists would, would, uh, you know, say there's a single, there's a single variety that really should be the case, but, but I, you know, it's, it's fun to explore what, what all they do. It, it does make, uh, once you find something you like, it does make finding it again, sometimes really difficult. Um, because there is so much variety, but I, I do think yeah. that's part of what's fun in the whiskey in the whiskey world is the the amount of variety and different different flavors and combinations that that people really put out there in the market. Yeah, and and there's regulations, and we talk about companies owning different producers. One of the big conglomerates owns uh, Scotch Distilleries, uh, one of the large tequila brands, and when you talk about standards, there. I think they're still actively trying to change the standards that would allow them to age whiskey in a formerly tequila filled barrel. Okay. At the moment is not allowed. Right. um, I guess as with all standards, standards can be changed and improved upon. And we call that Kaizen, I guess. Sure. Sure. And some of it's just, you know, why not if the market will tolerate it, but it's, it's interesting. You see the standards, you know, if you see the whole uh, industry standards book, uh, you know, vodka takes up about five lines. Whiskey takes up about 20 pages. Yeah. Uh, it's just so complex with all the different, different rules and regulations. But, but again, it, it, it creativity sometimes happens when you are put in a box when you say, okay, I've got to do, meet these parameters uh, to still call it X, which is what the market wants. And uh, how do I, how do I try new things and stay within those parameters? I think leads to, to more creativity. I mean, the only thing you see coming out of vodka is, is uh, you know, what, what do you infuse it with? Um, but there, there's far more, uh, far more experimentation and new ideas, new products coming out in the whiskey segment. Well, and, the other, the flip side of standards is in the, the American bourbon trade. I saw our friend David Meyer post something and my friend Dan Garrison from Garrison Brothers were both protesting or, you know, they wrote letters saying, no, please don't change these standards where um, there's, there's a proposal that um, American bourbon could only be aged in full size. I don't know if they're, they're 50 gallon barrels. The right. market has been very accepting to your point of experimentation of people using smaller barrels. Um, I had a Yamazaki Japanese whiskey, which would not be covered by these regulations that was aged in a larger barrel. So it, right. it, it was much more subtle, delicate aging. And um, I, I, there's, there's speculation. I'm not attributing this to uh, David or Dan, but the little bit I was reading says there's speculation that uh, the big producers are trying to squash innovation. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, and, and I wouldn't be surprised because they they benefit at least from some volume in in a uh, in in a standard process, and and the small guys either either have to or want to try things like smaller barrels, uh, uh, different ways to interact, just any 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 uh, any gimmick even to to get people's attention that says, well, you know what, this, this is different than other things that you've tried for this reason. And whether you taste the difference or not, it's, it's fun to see if you can. So, um, 
you know, I, I, I do think there's a, there's a risk of being too restrictive. Um, yeah. You know, if you want to call it one thing, if it's in that size barrel and something else, then maybe that's okay. But, but uh, uh, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to squash uh, the opportunity for people to experiment. Yeah. So I think things are actually, our, our different segments are stitching together, or at least I'm going to use the segue. You talk about innovation and creativity. We're going to talk about two people who were in the news who, uh, among other things, probably signify um, or personify innovation and all sorts of things. So one, one of the two men we're going to talk about here, one was legendary for, for what he did. Um, the one, the other was legendary for you know, a lot of ways for what he said. I mean, obviously he did a lot, but uh, when I introduce and talk about him, it makes me wonder about what he could have done if uh, history had progressed a little bit recently. So uh, Jamie, we'll let you go first. Yeah. So we're to start with Lee Iacocca who uh, passed away just a, just a few weeks ago at 94. Um, and I, I remember that morning because I, I woke up to the news. Almost the very second thing I saw was a, a note from you saying, hey, is this something you're interested in talking about? And honestly, my, my relationship with, with Lee wasn't hugely personal, but was still a bit visceral. And I was thinking, no, I don't think I'm really ready to talk about it. Yeah. And then Industry Week asked me that later that day saying, hey, would you mind writing a tribute? I thought, well, uh, geez, that's, that's an, that's an honor. I, I probably shouldn't pass up. Um, and, and so I wrote, I wrote it, which we'll, we'll link up in the, in the show notes. Yeah. A tribute. Yeah, it was a nice well. piece. Yeah. But, but most of the, most of the attention, uh, that Lee Iacocca gets is for, uh, what he, what he did in terms of the industry, in terms of product. So the Mustang and the minivan and the K car and airbags and all this stuff. But, you know, the angle I took was that, you know, his, his impact on people was far greater than anything he ever did in terms of, you know, even the Mustang and the minivan as huge as they were. Um, he, he was, he was a leader of, of organizations of people, um, and, and people followed him whether they met him or not. He was that, uh, that charismatic, um, you know, he, he certainly made, like any leader that's strong and committed and, and willing to, to be courageous, he, he made some mistakes. Uh, uh, you know, he did save Chrysler twice. Uh, <laughs> we kind of joke about, you know, that. But the fact was, he was also in charge in the middle where he, he ended up in a situation where right. he needed saving. It's like good news, you saved the company. Bad news, it required saving. Right. And and he was he was in in charge that entire time. Um, I know after, you know, after Chrysler, where I spent the bulk of my time after he had left, um, he, he, he joined up with Kirk Kerkorian on a, an attempted hostile takeover of Chrysler. And, and that, that, that does definitely sullied his name around the Chrysler or organization. Um, he, he did admit that was a mistake afterwards. I'm not sure he took full, full blame for why, but, but um, no, he made some, he made some mistakes uh, for certain, but um, <clears throat> his, his impact on people, you know, most people that work for him either directly or indirectly will still remember him the way other people remember people like Steve Jobs as just someone who compelled you to, uh, to, to, to follow, to, to get outside of what you thought was possible. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to be a, spend too much time on this, but I, 
I did want to share uh, a quote uh, from, from Denny Pauly. So uh, when I was asked to write the article, I reached out to a couple people that, that knew him very, very well. Um, and uh, and Denny, Denny was hired by, by Lee, was promoted by Lee, was basically put in a position. And for those who don't know Denny, he, he is who I consider one of the most iconic leaders in the auto industry uh, really was, was, I think, the single largest driving force behind the, the transformation of Chrysler in the, in the mid-90s. But, but what Denny said um, actually surprised me at, at how much, because he and I never really spent a lot of time talking about this, but this is what he said. I really believe that the name Lee Iacocca is the definition of leadership. He was fearless and never ran from a challenge. Competitors feared him but gave him the respect he deserved. Working for him created lots of tension, but I always knew he was there to pick me up if I fell. Mm. He always knew the exact amount of tension to apply without destroying an individual's motivation. I never wanted to fail at anything in my responsibility at Chrysler because I never wanted to disappoint him. He was a role model for me and many others in the industry. Mm. So I thought that was you know, quite the quote, uh, which is why yeah. I wanted to share it here. But how does that, and how does that strike you as a quote? Well, I mean, there's a lot to think about there. Um, I, I never had the chance to meet Lee Iacocca. I, I remember him from TV, and, and maybe I'll talk about that a little bit more um, later. But thing of that quote, um, I mean, I think this this idea of tension is something I've heard uh, Toyota, former Toyota people, talking about. Um, you know, creating a gap or identifying that there's a gap in performance and that gap um, creates tension that hopefully leads to improvement. If things are fine, you could raise the bar and create tension. And maybe that's back to the quote. And when you're creating tension, um, how do you set the bar high in a way that inspires people without setting the bar so high where people say, Oh, well, that's not possible. Let's not even try. Yeah, and I, I think the important thing about tension, it's, it's I've always taught it as three components. One, uh, that vision that you talk about, you know, something that is is definitely aspirational, but still feasible. Uh, it's, it's understanding what's wrong today, right? What helps explain that gap. And then I think it's the willingness to put yourself out there to help close that gap, right? Yeah, right. And, and right. no one took on more personal risk in terms of reputation, you know, financial, otherwise than, than, than Lee did. I mean, if Chrysler failed in 87, if he was never successful in that initial transformation, it, 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 nobody would talk about anyone else but Lee, right? Fired from Ford, yeah. comes into Chrysler and fails at resurrecting it. It would have been, it would have been a very different story. So, but he, he put himself out there in a, in a lot of, a lot of very specific ways, uh, some of which, you know, consumers and others remember as well. Yeah, that's a really important point. It's not just setting a goal. I mean, I, I'm sure we've, I've seen, we've probably both seen organizations where leaders set really aggressive goals and then do nothing but beat up on people proverbially uh, for not hitting those goals. And there, there's that part of the equation of, well, I'm going to set what seems like a outrageous goal, but I'm going to help you. I mean, I think that's that's the difference. And maybe the people who, who are yelling and screaming and maybe they think that's helping, but there's a better form of help, right? 
Yeah, and there's no question he he did plenty of that too. There was a, sure. a you know, we got it used to joke that he, you know he he would change executives like he changed shirts, and you know there's a lot of people that didn't cut it, um, and, and and yeah, he probably blamed some people. He probably just thought some people didn't cut it. Uh, they 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 just weren't what he needed at that particular time. He had a lot uh, a, a lot to do. He he definitely you know valued loyalty. Uh, as well and loyalty to the cause, not just him, but to, to the company and the, the cause that he was after. Um, and so he was, he was rough. He was, he was all those things, but, but there was enough truth and honesty in what he would say that you, you kind of didn't feel he was just being unfair. You, you felt that, well, okay. Yeah. He's, he's got me there. Um, I've got to do more. I've got to try harder. I've got to do whatever different. And so for, for many people, not all, uh, it, it did inspire them to, to, to work, I don't say a bit harder, but at least a bit differently uh, in order to fulfill the vision. Yeah, and when you talk about causes, you know, growing up uh, in the Detroit area in the 80s, uh, you know, Lee Iacocca was in the news a lot, of course, um, as CEO of Chrysler, one of the one of the big three. It was always big news when he said something. But one of the causes I remember him being involved in was being pretty instrumental in the committee that was restoring the Statue of Liberty back in, I think, 1986. About that. And I think, and and I was reading about this recently, he got fired from that commission. And it seemed like the implication was some of the other business leader appointees maybe thought Iacocca was getting too much credit. Because I, I remember in a lot of ways him being the face of that fundraising effort and maybe that was Detroit bias and that's where I was seeing the news. What do you, do you remember? Yeah, I don't remember, you know, I it certainly wasn't inside the committee. So I, <laughs> I, I don't know whether he was, um, uh, you know, whether he was grabbing undue attention. But my, my instinct was just that if he was grabbing, if he was ending up with too much attention, it was probably deserved um, <laughs> because he didn't, he didn't do things just to stroke his ego. He, he wanted to accomplish things. He, yeah. he, he valued actual accomplishment, not, not superficial accomplishment. Um, and, and it remind me, I, I got a, a little bit of a view up close of Roger Penske, who, you know, these are actually both uh, Lehigh graduates where I also went. So I have an affinity yeah. for both men. Yeah, uh, Lee Iacocca graduating, of course, before Roger Penske did. But, but, um, but Roger Penske's leadership in uh, bringing the Super Bowl to Detroit, and um, it was it was very hands-on leadership, uh, and and yeah, a lot of people helped, but they didn't they wouldn't have gotten it done without Roger Penske. And I I tend to believe knowing enough about Lee Iacocca. Uh, they it wouldn't have accomplished what they did without without him as well. So I, yeah. I, I I'd have to say uh, it's more likely in my mind the the uh, accusations were uh, based on jealousy than reality. Mm-hmm. I was I was just thinking that that word jealousy because um, he was high profile. I mean he was one of these executives, one of these CEOs who put himself out there in TV commercials as the spokesperson for the company. He he was famous. You know his his tagline. If you can find a better car, buy it. Because I remember I, I watched one of the articles 
and or one, one of the videos, I'm sorry, one of the, the commercials that's on YouTube. And he's talking about, compare us to the Europeans, compare us to the Japanese automakers. We're just as good. And, you know, there, he was really trying to help make that case. Yeah, he, he, he was. And, and I actually, in writing the article, I watched all his old commercials, even, yeah. even up to his post-retirement com- commercial with Snoop Dogg. Um, <laughs> That's right. Which is, uh, which is a funny one. Um, but, uh, but, you know, his, his point was, you know, first of all, you got to give us a shot. And, and if you don't trust the brand, trust me. And if it turns out I'm wrong, then I've, I've, I've violated your trust, right? That was the kind of way he was putting himself, himself out there. Um, and, 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 and it was unquestionably a factor in, in helping the company gain its reputation back. Now it, it had to back it up with products, but that's why right. he was so focused on product, right? He yeah. wasn't, he wasn't a manufacturing guy. He wasn't a finance guy. I would argue he wasn't even a sales and marketing guy, even though he, he did some things there brilliantly. He was a product guy. Um, and, and, and so he wouldn't have done that if he didn't believe that Chrysler was putting out better product than they had in the past, whether he believed it was the best product or not. I don't know if we can ever know that, but he definitely believed it was product worth giving a shot. And that's why he put his, his, his name on it essentially. I mean, I wonder how much of statements like that were looking backward at data versus, in a way, you know, knowing employees were going to watch those commercials, was that sort of an aspirational statement that he hoped people would rally behind? We are going to build cars as good in some dimensions as the Europeans and, and different dimensions of Japanese quality. Yeah, I would say I would say he kind of perhaps expected his his organization to understand its message and 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 follow along. So I'm not sure the commercials were really for the employees, but the message the message was consistent inside and out, right? We're going we're gonna to design better product. We're going to build better product. We're going to stand behind better product. And, um, and, and that's what's going to win the day. And it, and it did um, yeah. twice. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, some of, the, some of the argument would be that he, with the Statue of Liberty and other things, that's when he took his eye off the ball, which required mm-hmm. second Chrysler saving. Um, but... Uh, uh, but but even if he didn't come up with the products in the second Chrysler saving, you know his his he, he challenged the company to take risks and take risks it did um, on the product uh, stuff that nobody believed would sell, but 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 did because people had the the confidence behind trying something different. Yeah. So, any any other thoughts on Lee Iacocca? No, I would just say you know he, he was a man that. Um, you know, you, you always wonder how much of that is left behind. And, and I could say that there was, there was many leaders left behind when he left that were, uh, that, that still did what he wanted them to do. I'm not sure they woke up saying, what would Lee do? But they, they definitely, rem- that, that inspiration was, was carried forward. And, and the impact he's had at Lehigh University, where, I, where I'm involved in alumni as well, is still felt to this day uh, what he's created and what he believed in. It wasn't just donating money. It was believing in things and then helping create them to fulfill that vision. And so even in his personal life or in his, his uh, philanthropic life, he, he carried those same attributes uh, forward. And I, and I think that's a good, you know, he, he at least had the platform uh, 
with Ford and then with Chrysler to do those things. Um, and as you, as you talked about, you know, the, the one you want to talk about, you know, he said a lot of great things, wasn't always able to accomplish them. You know, maybe he just didn't have the right platform. So uh, why, don't, why don't you introduce who you'd like to talk about? Yeah. So within the course of a couple of weeks, um, the other leader, business leader, uh, philanthropist, um, a pillar of the Dallas community, but I certainly learned about Ross Perot um, when I was growing up around Detroit following auto industry news. Ross Perot passed away at age 89. Um, Ross Perot, not exclusively um, associated with the auto industry. He was um, only part of General Motors for a couple of years. You, you might know him as the founder of the software and technology company EDS. General Motors bought EDS in 1984. Ross Perot ended up on the board of directors of General Motors, and that lasted for all of about two years before Perot was personally bought out um, and, and, and kicked off the board. So, you know, talk a little bit about his GM time. Uh, one other thing I think was interesting reading about him, you know, he was often referred to as H. Ross Perot. And, you know, the one article said he didn't like being referred to as H. Ross because he thought that sounded snooty or highfalutin or pretentious or whatever the word was. Right. And, and I, I know somebody in the Dallas area who um, had a number of meetings with him. And he was just Ross. And I, I read similar things. Uh, in the news that, that, that he was just Ross. And, um, you know, I, I remember the, the, the GM stories. And even when I started working at GM in 1995, there was still a wake uh, that, that was, was still bounce. Uh, is this the right way of describing a wake? Ross Perot left quite a wake behind him in the waves in his time passing through General Motors. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he, he did to that point around Ross, <clears throat> perhaps differently than, than uh, Mr. Iacocca, um, as he was commonly referred to. You know, he, he does seem like a very genuine down-to-earth guy, a straight talker, uh, which is what his, his uh, you know, lots of politicians will say straight talker, but, but I, I think few were as much, you get him, right? And, and he's going to believe what he believes, he's going to do what he thinks is right, and, and he may be wrong, but you're never going to get a a con contained version of Ross. You're going to get, yeah. you're going to get Ross Perot uh, in any forum. Right. And I, yeah. I think um, that, that is what, uh, that's what uh, appealed. Uh, it's what a lot of people found appealing in him as a presidential candidate, as a leader yeah. in business, yeah. as a leader in the community is, is his authenticity. Yeah. I mean, he had, you know, certainly a folksy charm, he had his charts. <laughs> he did. He did right. infomercials. Lee Iacocca did a lot of thirty-second commercials. Ross Perot was maybe the first presidential candidate who ever did thirty-minute infomercials. Right, sitting at a desk and showing charts and talking to people um, through the camera, which was um, an interesting approach. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was trying to. Well, he wasn't using an A three problem-solving template. Yeah. He was. He was trying to define the problem, understand the problem, and solve the problem. He yeah. he wasn't about slogans. He wasn't about uh, you know uh, just sort of a following the crowd and a one line answer. Is like he understood these were complex problems that required complex solutions, and um, and and so he was about solving problems. That was 
that was who he was, which, which I can respect the heck out of. Yeah. So when Ross Perot went into General Motors, General Motors of 1984 had a lot of problems in a lot of ways. And there is a Fortune magazine article. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. I'm pulling it back up. It was from 1988. So this is after uh, Perot was kicked out of General Motors. But the headline is a Perot quote, basically. It's titled, The GM System is Like a Blanket of Fog. And let me just read a little quote here because there, there was the one thing about snakes that I remembered and, and I found the full quote. I'm not going to do uh, a Ross Perot impression. If no impressions. You, I'm no Dana Carvey, but if you read it and like you, in your mind, you can't help but hear if you know the Ross Perot voice, here's the quote. I come from an environment where if you see a snake, you kill it. See, and it's hard not to try to read it with some <laughs> So he's talking about EDS. If you see a snake, you kill it. At GM, if you see a snake, the first thing you do is go hire a consultant on snakes. Then you get a committee on snakes, and then you discuss it for a couple of years. The most likely course of action is nothing, because you figure the snake hasn't bitten anybody yet, so you just let them crawl around on the factory floor. We need to build an environment where the first guy who sees the snake kills it. <laughs> That's Ross Perot in a nutshell, that quote. It, it, it really is, both, both the imagery, right, that, that's, yeah. that's there. But I think also that he, he, wasn't, he wasn't worried about self-promotion. He wasn't worried about what people thought. He was worried about, you know, fixing problems. And, and that, I think that quote is all about that. Uh, it, certainly many people wrote about that era of GM, which, uh, you know, if you read about that era, you would you would really be surprised to see GM still alive today, yeah. Um, and of course, it almost wasn't. But but um, that I think that was a very very apt description of how GM was known to operate uh, with with lots of yes men, lots of people self preserving, lots of lots of committees and 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 uh, structure that that even even leaders found that came in with significant so-called power had a hard time finding their way through as, as he did himself. Yeah. And, you know, in, in that fortune magazine article, you know, there's more comments where Perot describes the bureaucracy and the internal politics and, and just sort of the cautious culture where Ross Perot was an entrepreneur. You know, he started EDS, he built EDS and what was, I'm sure, a, you know, just a more fast paced, technology industry, nobody running General Motors at that, at that time was anywhere close to have, have, have uh, you know, they weren't close to have start being one who started General Motors. They weren't starting companies. And, you know, I think GM, part of the hope was that Perot would help GM be more entrepreneurial, that Perot would help change GM. Uh, but I think there were a lot of cultural antibodies that sort of attacked Perot is a foreign um, element into their 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 system, and and GM just GM couldn't be changed. So you know, it makes me wonder if you know, gosh, if there had been uh, any support, you know, to have replaced Roger Smith with Ross Perot, um, what would have happened? And in that article, Perot talks about you know they criticized him as like, well, you're not you you're not an auto industry guy, you don't know cars. And his response was, I know taking care of customers. Right. 
And what path would GM have gone on if uh, the infamous bureaucrat, uh, Roger, and the bureaucrats who follow Roger Smith, if, if they had been replaced with Ross Perot? Right. I, I, I know um, uh, you, we, we, you look at Bob Lutz's tenure there, the, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the Pontiac Aztec came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a what a what a disastrously designed vehicle that was, um, and he actually said about it. And I I, I I don't know if I could quote him, but I basically he said the, the the hierarchy and the bureaucracy of GM. Once the ball got rolling on this product, nobody was able to kill it. Yeah. Um, it was it was had so much momentum that uh, even though nobody really liked it, nobody <laughs> also could kill it. And um, <laughs> It, it is good to see GM has changed, you know, certain aspects and, and certainly mm -hmm. has a little more. Lutz, Lutz had a big impact. Yeah, than it did then. But, but that was, you know, he was uh, basically lamenting to the point where even he, bad idea, the system was so strong and so bureaucratic that bad ideas got through. Mm -hmm. And the Pontiac Aztec was, was such an example. But you've got to believe that Perot would have, would have fired uh, – an awful lot of senior leadership and probably a whole bunch of middle management as well. Yeah. And, you know, one other way, you know, to remember uh, Perot, you know, having lived in Dallas for uh, over a decade now, the Perot name uh, is, you know, he's, he's you know, been a huge part of the Dallas community. There's uh, a museum in Dallas that that's named after him because I, I presume uh, I should have Googled this, but poor show prep on my part. I, I'm sure he gave a lot of money uh, to that cause. And then he was also known for supporting uh, wounded veterans. And uh, Rick Perry, uh, former governor of Texas, posted an article saying, you know, Ross Perot wouldn't have wanted me to say this when he was alive, but I think I need to share the story now. And I'll link to it in the show notes. But, you know, Rick, Rick Perry described Perot as being, you know, a tireless but private supporter of our wounded veterans. And there's a story that he tells about one in particular, he provided a lot of um, financial support and moral support to the soldier and his family. Um, and, uh, you know, Perry said when, when he was alive, Ross would have shunned any effort to grant him credit for the support um, during these, during, during challenges times. But now that he's gone, everyone should know the quality of the man that our state, our nation, and our wounded veterans have lost. So I thought that was uh, a nice tribute to Ross Perot. No, it's fantastic. And, I, you know, and he sold his company for, for two and a half billion, uh, you know, in, in dollars of those days, which was uh, quite a bit more now today. And, and he used it in all kinds of ways, right? So first, first uh, in, in uh, Dallas and continued. And of course, his, his famous presidential run, um, but, but, you know, he was, and I, I did look this up, mm -hmm. uh, he was the most successful third-party candidate mm -hmm. uh, in the modern era. There's a few more, like Abraham Lincoln was technically uh, a third-party candidate in his first, mm -hmm. first run. So it, it, there were some, some anomalies if you go way back in time. But yeah, at 18, but you know, we look at a third-party candidate getting 5% as, as a crazy high because the system is so sort of rigged against him. He got eight almost 19% of the vote. Um, that meant that no matter how much system was around him, he appealed to an awful lot of people. And, um, and, and uh, I don't know how much he permanently changed the system there, which might've been why he focused on the other things, but 
yeah. uh, certainly had an impact. And, and I, I do remember just appreciating his, his straight talk mm-hmm. um, uh, as, as, a, as a candidate as well as a businessman. Yeah. And, you know, for those who don't remember, I mean, he was on the debate stage with uh, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. He had enough polling support that he really just sort of forced his way um, onto that debate stage. So um, remembering two, two leaders, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, both passed away within a couple of weeks of each other, even though who knows if they ever met or crossed paths during Perot's time in the auto industry, uh, Lee Iacocca and uh, Ross Perot. So as always, we're, we're going to do a reader question. We've gotten a number of these questions. If you have another question, you can, you can email me, mark at markgraven.com. Jamie, do you want to give out your email address if someone wants to email? Yeah, Jamie at jflinch.com. Yeah. So there's a question from Rick Eaton. Can you discuss the need for true humility and leadership that really values the people at the Gemba and how this naturally adds more value to the whole enterprise? What, what do you think, Jamie? Yeah, so, so um, yeah, humility is thrown around a lot as a, as, a, as a great term, a great leadership trait. And, and then you see an awful lot of leaders, and I'm not really sure how much humility I had Coca and and Perot demonstrated or how much they had, right? Because demonstrating and having it are different things. But, but I, I think it always sounds good, but, but you almost have to break it down to, to really being more practical about why this is good. And to me, it comes down to two factors. One, it's the impact on the other person, right? And, and if you're humble, the other person means that you haven't automatically placed yourself above that other person they feel respected. And whether we do that, you know, for the, for the right reason or the wrong reason, fundamentally, people who feel respected are going to produce more, mm-hmm. right? They're going to be more engaged, uh, more Less inspired, yeah. Yeah, more energized, all, all yeah. of that. And so, so I think that humility goes a long way in terms of just how, how other people feel. The, the other side of that is what it does to you as an individual. And I think approaching things with humility uh, allows you to learn. It, it opens up your mind to learning from the people, from experiences, from whatever. And, and to me, you know, learning is the, the essence of lean. Lean is all about learning. And, and so you need, I'm not saying broad humility or generic humility, but at least in the context, as you approach your work, you need humil- humility in the sense that you're open to learning. And to me, again, whether you put your morals aside, those are just good two practical reasons to, to approach things with humility. Yeah. Um, when I think of humility, you know, people talk about leading with humility. One of my favorite books, um, I, I mention it a lot because I think it, it's sort of underappreciated. It's a book written by a number of Toyota people from Kentucky and, and their plant there. It's a book called Toyota by Toyota. Do you know? I do know the book. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, Daryl Wilburn, Sammy Obara and others. And, you know, chapter one of the book really emphasizes and uh, humility. And there, there are stories in there and they talk about uh, you know, the Toyota principles of challenge. You know, you were talking about that earlier um, with Lee Iacocca challenging people and, 
um, humility being uh, a big part of that. But so then, so it's one thing for people to describe and say, well, you know, Toyota leaders are humble. It's important to be humble. A lot of organizations promote people with no, you know, it's not a big criteria. You know, we're we're, we're, uh, promoting people who delivered results. We're delivering people um, who have a lot of personal traits and, and maybe a lot of these organizations haven't valued or, or, or promoted or executives haven't led by example with humility. So I, I think it's interesting when, when we talk about this within the context of lean or companies that are trying to get toward a lean culture, I, I, you know, there's this question I'm curious your thoughts of, can someone actually become more humble through reflection, reflection and coaching, or as, as people might say in Texas, like, oh, once that cow's out, out of the barn, you don't really become less humble over time. I don't know. Um, I, I, I do think you can become more humble. And, and um, you know, it may not be, you know, 24 hours a day, but, but I think it is something that can be adjusted. Um, one, I think having a coach of one form or the other uh, helps, right? They, they kind of check you and ch- help you check your ego. And mm-hmm. I think coaches can help uh, – at least manage your, hum- your humility, even if they can't always change it. Yeah. Um, I think putting yourself into situations where you know you're out of your league, right? Uh, uh, things where uh, you, you have no hope of excelling. Uh, I even find just, you know, international travel. Every time I go to a new country, I have no clue what the standards are. And it it puts me in check, like, hey, I'm a, I'm an, I'll look like an idiot because I don't know what's going on, and I, I honestly believe that that helps build humility, and open yourself up to new experiences, and and then I, I do think that there's you know sort of uh, periodic based mental checks, right? So even if you don't become a more humble person, you can go into a specific moment with humility, just by checking yourself, your intention about why why you're doing a certain thing. I'm going to go to the shop floor. I'm going to go talk to the front line. I, I, I'm, I'm going to learn. I'm going to approach it like I don't know what's right and I need them to teach me. And so even if you're not a more humble person, in that moment, you can sort of check your intention and approach that moment with humility. And I think that's very, very manageable as long as you, you sort of set yourself up with that, with that approach. Yeah. And I think, you know, events in life can be humbling. People uh, are humbled. And then I'm, I'm going to, this is a, an aside grammar geek. Um, when I see people post something on LinkedIn or, or Twitter and they say, I'm humbled to receive this of great honor. I'm like, I think you, I think you meant honored. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't think winning a great award is necessary, necessarily a humbling experience. Maybe that's why people sometimes call that a humble brag. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I think that's a good term for it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's bragging while desperately hanging on to uh, the air of humility. And I, I, I can't say I'm innocent of that. I have no idea if I am or not, but it, uh, it, it, it certainly, you know, you want to brag about something, you don't, you don't want to seem like you're a bragger. So you throw the word humility in there and it softens the blow, but it doesn't really. No. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm great at humility. That, that's, <laughs> I did get um, as a joke, and it's not because he's not humble, but one of my colleagues at Kinexus, I, I forget how we were talking about 
some of this, but I, I, I bought him a coffee mug and I need to get a coffee copy of this mug. Um, it's got the Kinexus logo on the one side. Then the other side, it's like the Michael Scott world's best boss mug from the office. But I had printed on the mug world's most humble leader, which is just <laughs> a funny thing to be uh, standing there and holding. And I've seen uh, my colleague Clint uh, hold the mug and someone will do a double take like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> yep. You know, and I, I saw that mug. I think it's hilarious. Um, uh, obviously, meant meant uh, meant to have some fun with folks. And and to be honest, there's some great leaders out there. As I mentioned earlier, with you know, Mr. Iacocca was probably not known for his humility. Mm-hmm. There are some great leaders out there that do not demonstrate this uh, this trait. Right? Yeah. Um, so so is it a requirement? I, I think it's not a requirement for all organizations under all conditions, but to build the type of organization that really, uh, you know, lifts people up and, and, and accomplishes the most, I think it's a very effective leadership trait. And yeah. so, uh, you know, even if you don't think humility is just, I want to be a hum- humble leader, I, I think there's some, some logic, if not some data behind the value in, in, in demonstrating that. And again, not, not falsely demonstrating it, practicing it, in, in how you engage the organization. Yeah, and I, and I think as with all things related to organizational culture, uh, you know, some sense of consistency is key. If you are an organization that has been built upon a history of humble leadership, um, hiring some new executive from the outside who doesn't share that trait may get kicked out more quickly than Ross Perot got kicked out of General Motors. Yeah, and it's 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 um, it, it is something people look at uh, whether they always uh, consider it as the the number one trait or not is, is secondary. Uh, but again, I go back to you're going to get more out of your people if you demonstrate this, and fundamentally, you're going to learn more. And if you feel you've already learned everything you need to learn, well, then you're both not humble and don't need to be, I guess. Um, but but fundamentally, you approach. You approach your work from a humble nature. You approach your engagements from a humble nature. You're gonna learn more in, inherently to how you how you engage, and I just think there's a, a pragmatic value in that. Yeah. All right. So closing question. This is a question that uh, Paul Critchley and I um, closed with in episode five, and thought we'd ask Jamie. And I've got other podcasts I listen to as well. If you can believe it, we listen to podcasts that aren't about lean. And maybe, yes, maybe do. next, huh? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, maybe, maybe next time we'll talk about what, what's a non-lean book that you really like. But, um, Sounds like a good question. But yeah, yeah this one's, this one's our, our non-lean podcast. Um, and I, I used to listen to podcasts a lot. And then uh, perhaps because I, I had less time, perhaps because I, I was listening to music more, I just, I just sort of stopped listening to podcast almost all together hmm. and and it was really me getting back into podcasts when because we had talked about lean whiskey for quite a while when I got back into podcasts I was thinking yeah let's let's do this <laughs> yeah. um, this this is fun so so one of my favorite recent uh, non-lean podcasts is still in the in the same vein still a leadership podcast but it's called no noble life-changing conversations with Bill Campbell and Bill Campbell was a, a passed away a few years ago. 
who's a legendary Silicon Valley coach. Um, there's a there's a book uh, by by uh, Google's Eric Schmidt called yeah. the Trillion Dollar Coach. Yeah, uh, and, and the trillion dollar coach really uh, sounds crazy, right? But he coached Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, uh, the entire you know Google leadership team. Um, he he really was the coach in Silicon Valley, without question. Mm. And um, and so these were iconic people that he coached uh, throughout throughout, and 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 a lot of people at, at at less known levels. It wasn't he wasn't just exclusive to the uh, to, to the folks worth, you know, billions of dollars. But um, the podcast was put together by uh, uh, Bullpen Capital's Paul Martino, who's also a Lehigh grad, uh, how, I've, how I've met him, and Kleiner Perkins, uh, Randy Komisar, both were coached by Bill. And as they, as they say in the podcast, you know, Randy was one of his first coaches, coaches, Paul was one of his last um, and, and they have lots of guests on the podcast to share stories and it, and it really is just, you could almost imagine this as a, as a, as a, uh, a version of a wake of people who remember him fondly telling these stories about Bill Campbell, but all of them, you know, uh, really do enlighten you into the, the, the mind and engagement style of a, of, of a pretty iconic person in his own right. So it's, it's it's because it's a lot of storytelling. It's it's an appealing podcast to me, and mm-hmm. uh, once I once I listened to the first couple, I I, I binged listened to the rest of the the whole set because it was I really did find it uh, very entertaining and uh, and and educational as well. So I am going to go ahead and search for that in Apple Podcasts. Here we go. No bull. Subscribe. There you cool. go. Thank you. Um, so last time I talked a little bit about the Dan Lebitard show kind of in the realm of sports and um, humor. Uh, another podcast that I listen to pretty regularly uh, is called Up First by uh, NPR News. I, I, the last couple of years, I, I tend to try, I, I've tried to swear off cable news just because of the, the yelling and arguing and talking heads instead of news reporting. So I listen to a lot of NPR through an app called NPR One, but that app, as good as it is, it requires streaming. So if I'm going to be on a plane or or someplace where I can't stream, that Up First podcast uh, provides a a really good 15-minute news summary. Um, Again, like without the the (laughs) stress-inducing yelling and screaming. I feel like they actually, imagine that, a news organization that sends reporters out to actually learn what's going on instead of just talking to people from two sides of the political spectrum <laughs> about what's in the news. So that that's why I listened up first. No, it's not, and that sounds perfect for me. I just subscribed to that while you were explaining it. Um, I, I travel a lot, as, as some of you know me well, uh, yeah. see me out on the road. And um Every once in a while, when I when I feel like I didn't have enough time in the previous days to read the news, I, I wake up and I, I try to throw on anything, uh, CNBC, CNN, whatever, and 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 within thirty minutes, I I, I find myself chastising myself for the mistake because <laughs> uh, even CNBC is you know mostly a political show these days, even though mm-hmm. yeah. about uh, companies. So yeah. uh, that, that sounds like a perfect one for me. Um, and, uh, and and so I'll I'll definitely give that one a listen. Cool. So this uh, this I guess brings us to the end. Uh, hopefully, yeah. 
you know, as people on other podcasts will talk about lean whiskey as their, uh, their, their, their podcast to listen to. <laughs> but why don't you, uh, why don't you bring us home with a few, uh, few of our key reminders? Yeah. And I've got, we each have a little sip of whiskey left here. So we do and find all past episodes, a couple of different ways. You can go to leanwhiskey.com and whether you spell whiskey with a K E Y or a K Y uh, at the end, it works just the same or the site on my blog is leanblog.org slash lean whiskey or on Jamie's site. It is jflinch.com slash lean whiskey. So if you have not already done so, we hope you would uh, subscribe to us. Um, I'm not going to edit that out. That's just my, that's going to make, that's going to be the intro to the, uh, to the episode. That's, that's a couple whiskeys in. That's, <clears throat> that's a whiskey and a slight little pour. I just stumble over words sometimes. Um, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe if you can. Yeah, and these these ratings really do help um, other people find the podcast. So, um, you know, we, we don't want, want the ratings just because we want to feel good. It it really helps the system and help other people find them. So uh, so please do please do give us a, a rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate it. Yeah. So thanks for listening, Jamie. Thanks uh, for doing this again. We'll hold up what's left uh, of our glass. Y'all. That's not really how two glasses clinking would have sounded, but close enough. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.